If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, we'll consider together verses 6 through 21. We are closing, bringing to an end our series in the book of Revelation on a Sunday when we celebrate the sending out of a new church. The message of Revelation, the call to perseverance in the face of opposition and the sending out of Gospel Life Church brings to mind the words of our Savior. Behold, I send you out as sheep among wolves. That may not sound terribly encouraging for the good folks of Gospel Life Church embarking on a new work, new church, and new mission, but that is close to the heart of what Revelation is about. Jesus is fairly clear. Kingdom work is hard. The world is an immensely dark place. However, we need not fear. Jesus goes on to say in the same passage, don't fear those who kill the body but aren't able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid. Therefore, you are worth more than many sparrows. This is the message of Revelation. That there are hard, difficult days, even dark days ahead. But we needn't fear because of the power of the gospel and the promise of resurrection. The conclusion of the book here in verses 6 and following reinforces this message. And even adds an element of urgency that might otherwise be overlooked. Jesus says repeatedly, behold, I am coming quickly. If you found your way there, join me as we stand together to read the word of God. Revelation 22 and verse number 6. The Bible says, then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his slaves what must quickly take place. Look, I am coming quickly. The one who keeps the prophetic words of this book is blessed. I, John, am, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow slave with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book worship God. He also said to me, don't seal the prophetic words of this book because the time is near. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy go on being made filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness and let the holy go on being made holy. Look, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to repay each person according to what he's done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Anyone who hears should say, come. And the one who is thirsty should come. Whoever desires should take the living water as a gift. 
And I testify to everyone who hears the prophetic words of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophetic book, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city written in this book. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Like the end of virtually all New Testament letters, the conclusion is kind of a scattershot. There are a variety of issues that are being addressed. John is grabbing all of the loose ends left by the writing of the book of Revelation and tying them up neatly in a bow to bring conclusion to the book. But even in this scattershot approach to tying up loose ends, John is still reinforcing the basic message of Revelation. Even in the conclusion, he continues to exhort and encourage the church. He lets us in to what we might consider to be something of an embarrassing episode in his own experience. Revelation 1 begins by John noting that I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and this vision was begun. An angel comes to John symbolizing, signifying the Lord Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel and what the future of the church held for them. John says here at the end of Revelation that given this experience, he fell down at the feet of the angel as though to worship him. He has to be corrected. It's kind of an embarrassing scene for John. But its placement here at the end of Revelation reinforces so much of the message that Christ and Christ alone is worthy of our worship. I think there's something to be said for this topic, even in verse number six. Look there. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his slaves what must quickly take place. Listen to that again. It's kind of cumbersome in verse six. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his slaves what must quickly take place. It seems as though in these first few verses of our passage that John is addressing an issue that was fairly prevalent in the first century church. We, we don't get this as much in the Western world with all of our science and we're driven in that way. We're not as spiritual in the West as is much of the world. But in parts of the world where there's a real sensitivity, a keen eye for spiritual things, there continues to be this fascination with and even fixation on spirits, even in some circles, good spirits. There's an example in the book of Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews addresses fascination with and even the worship of angels. And the basic teaching of Hebrews is, that Jesus is better than the angels. Don't worship angels, worship Jesus. Jesus is better. Practically speaking, what Hebrews is saying is that spiritualism is not sufficient to save the soul, but Jesus is. Therefore, Jesus is better. Worship Jesus. John seems to be addressing this a bit here at the close of Revelation. You see evidence of this in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as well. A warning against fascination with or fixation on spiritual things. Now here, the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets seems to be a somewhat subtle admonition 
that we don't get fascinated with the spirit that endows the prophet with the ability to prophesy. We fixate on the God of the spirits of the prophets. When you see a prophet prophesy in this first century setting, we're not to go, wow, what a prophet, or wow, what a spirit. I want to have that spirit or be like that prophet. We are to say, wow, what a God who has endowed with this measure of spirit, this prophet, in order to prophesy, thus saith the Lord. Even those things that bear the appearance of nobility, those things which seem morally good, are not deserving of the praise, worship, honor, and glory that is to be paid to Christ and to Christ alone. This becomes clear, I think, as we work through the passage. In verse 7, Jesus speaks. And he says here, look, I am coming quickly. Now, most of the time when you hear sermons on this address, verse 7, it's said again in verse 12, look, I am coming quickly. There are other examples, especially early in the book of Revelation. The book virtually begins with, I am coming quickly. The, the preachers that preach this and the authors who write about this almost always take a defensive posture. Here's what I mean. The underlying suggestion is that given the fact that 2,000 years have passed since Jesus said, look, I am coming quickly, we cannot take credibly what Jesus says when he says, look, I am coming quickly. I don't think that's the case at all. Rather, I see the 2,000 years that has passed since Jesus said, look, I am coming quickly as a testament to the patient long-suffering of Jesus toward his people, bearing with us even in our sin until the last of the sheep have been brought into the sheepfold. Usually the way this problem, as it's perceived, is alleviated is by suggesting that when Jesus says, look, I am coming quickly, that what he means is, when the time of his coming comes, he will go about his coming fast. I think Jesus means, I am coming quickly. And again, we have now 2,000 years that testifies to the faithfulness of the good shepherd to see to it that the last sheep in the sheepfold is brought in before the sheep gate is closed and our Savior descends on a cloud in great glory. I think rather than, than undermining the credibility of the statement, this extended period of time that we have enjoyed since this statement was itself made is a testament to the goodness of our God, to the realities of 2 Peter where the Bible says that it's his desire that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. The good shepherd is actively seeking his sheep, people of every tongue and tribe and nation, until the last sheep has been brought through the sheep gate, and then, dear friends, the end will come. What I'm suggesting to you is, we can say with all of the fervor and enthusiasm of a first century believer, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming quickly. Our hearts can be set on edge with expectation and anticipation at the promise that indeed Christ is coming, and he is coming quickly. Verse 8. John lets us in on this embarrassing episode I mentioned. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. 
But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow slave with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. I want you to think about how practical and all-encompassing that little two-word imperative here in Revelation, worship God, is for you and me. In some ways, it encapsulates the practical message of Revelation. Don't worship Caesar, worship God. Don't succumb to the propaganda of the day that Caesar is Lord. Rather, hold fast to the message of the gospel that Jesus is Lord, worship God. Now, put yourself for just a moment in the sandals of one of those believers in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago. A friend of Antipas, that faithful witness who died for his faith in Jesus. So you know, you know, you're keenly aware of the severity with which the empire deals with those who give their allegiance to Jesus. And you find yourself at the tip of the spear. And the charge you're given is to pay homage to, to give tribute to, to worship the Caesar or one of the pantheon of gods that was worshipped in the Roman Empire. Where, where are you to find in that moment the faith and fortitude to stand fast, to hold on to the gospel? And I would submit to you it's in this little two-word imperative here in verse number 9, worship God. More practically, in your personal life, when tempted by sin, when enticed by the desires of the flesh, you all know the most enticing sin for you. All of you are wrestling with some manner of sin. Perhaps some of you have given up on your wrestlings and are simply succumbing to temptation on a consistent basis, but you're aware of the presence of that sin in your life. How are you in the heat of temptation, to find the faith and the fortitude to stand fast. I would submit to you it's in this two-word imperative here in verse number 9. In the moment, it's not really a decision as to whether to give in to the temptation or not. It's a matter of will I worship God in the moment. Or give my allegiance, my praise, my adoration, my glory elsewhere. Worship God. Worship him. With all of your life, worship him. We're wrapping up a series in the book of Revelation. This is a worthy note. We tend to drift toward the enigmatic, the mysterious, the difficult to know. And to pass over what is so plainly clear. If you have found yourself along the way in our study of the book of Revelation confused or frustrated at various points, I just want to remind you that, that there is plenty. Even as we labor to sort, of, to sort of till and mine the ground of the Bible, there is enough laying openly on the ground that we might glean for the nourishment of our soul to keep you and I busy for all of eternity. Here we have a two-word commandment that can keep us busy for the next 10,000 years. We've not even gotten to love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is enough here for the nourishment of your soul. This two-word commandment is all-encompassing. The way we persevere in the faith, the way we don't succumb to the propaganda of the day, the way we remain steadfast and faithful over time is by worshiping God. John lets us in to this embarrassing episode in order to reinforce what has been so thoroughly taught in the previous 21 chapters. We don't give our worship to the idols of the empire. We worship Jesus and Jesus alone. In verse 10, he also said to me, don't seal the prophetic words of this book because the time is near. There may be more there than what you realize. In the prophecy of Daniel, which is like the book of Revelation for the Old Testament, Daniel is foretelling the events leading up to and beginning what are described there as the last days. Daniel basically describes in prophecy the events that unfold between the time of Daniel the prophet and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And in Daniel's prophecy, the last days are begun with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. It's somewhat veiled, but it's there in the prophecy of Daniel. That's as far as Daniel, in my estimation, goes. The last days begin with the resurrection of Jesus. We are in the last days using the terminology of the Bible. But in the course of that prophecy, Daniel is instructed to seal up the words of this prophetic book. In other words, there are certain elements with regards to what the future hold, which are withheld from our sight until the time of Jesus, and in some ways, the book of Revelation. When this observation is made here, don't seal the prophetic words of this book because the time is near. There are a few things that John is signaling to us. One, that these are the last days. The last days have begun. Two, John sees himself as placed within the framework of Daniel's last days prophecy. And three, what had been veiled to us in Daniel's prophecy has now been made crystal clear for us in the prophecy of John. Where there used to be mystery as to what the future holds for the church, that mystery has been alleviated by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and described in vivid detail in the book of Revelation. It's open. It's apparent. It's clear to see. In other words, as the church under the new covenant, our future is now in the past. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus suffered and bled and died and was raised again. And he has charged the church that we would follow after that pattern established in his life and ministry. And that, that our experience of, of suffering and even enduring great shame and anguish would be brought to a halt and rewarded in our resurrection even as Jesus was raised after the shame and indignity of the cross. We are to enjoy resurrection following after that pattern of Jesus. Y'all tracking with me this morning? Jesus' life 
sets the model for our life experience. You want to know what the future holds for the church? Look at the life and ministry of Jesus. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus lays down his life at the cross that people of every tongue and tribe and nation would come to faith in him that our sin debt might be paid for. Now the church has been charged to take up the cross and to follow after him, to risk life and limb, to live for his glory and not our own, marching, if necessary, face first into their teeth of death that the world might know of the gift of salvation found in Jesus, though we may be cut down in the process. It's not a big deal because the Passion Week of Jesus did not end on Good Friday. It ended on a Sunday with the resurrection of our Savior Jesus. And so too the final experience of the church will end in resurrection glory. Are, are, y'all, are y'all with me? I mean, this is kind of a big deal. Our future is in the past. The mystery has been alleviated. We know what the future holds for us. Hardship, difficulty, challenges along the way. But in the end, resurrection glory. This is a beautiful thing for us. Look at verse 11. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy go on being made filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness and let the holy go on being made holy. I read verse 11. Some of you may stumble at verse 11. I read verse 11 as a provocation. So he's charging and encouraging the church. Some have gone out. John makes the observation and First John, they were among us, but they went out from us because they were not of us. There's this, there's this rub with the idea that there were some who were here and now they've defected and they're teaching another gospel and they've gone the wayward way and they've been influenced by the world. Do we go after that? How do we understand this whole phenomenon of people coming in and, and going out? And it's as though John says here, let the righteous go on in unrighteousness and you see how that works out for them while at the same time saying to those who have been called to faith and perseverance, persevere in righteousness. Let the righteous go on in righteousness. Let the holy go on being made holy. And you see how God rewards it in the end. It's a provocative statement, a word of warning to those who have defected, to those given to unrighteousness, and a word of admonition and encouragement to those who would persevere in holiness. In verse 12, Jesus speaks again. Look, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to what he has done. Here you'll find the writers take a defensive posture again. The preachers take a defensive posture. This seems to read as though we're working, we're doing things, currying favor with God so that we receive this reward at the coming of Jesus. We recall against that Because we have been well indoctrinated, that we have been saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that is true. But haven't you observed that the faith that has saved you from your sin has had the effect of sanctifying your life over time? Aren't your words and your thoughts and your deeds, your actions shaped by your faith in Jesus Christ? Listen, I get that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. You'll find no greater champion 
of that doctrinal principle than the pastor in the pulpit this morning. But we need to get our heads around the reality that the grace of God that has washed over our life is not in conflict with the real effort that God has called us to, to work out our salvation in fear and in trembling, to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Those are not in conflict. In fact, the grace that has washed over our life and the faith that has been the avenue of God's salvation is empowering and enabling the kind of word, deed, thought, and action that brings honor and glory and praise to the God who died for our sin. I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me. You should probably preach to your heart on a regular basis that our reward cannot be found here. There is a strong likelihood that you will not be rewarded for your faithfulness to Jesus in this life. Occasionally, I see these great awards, rewards being bestowed for Christian faithfulness. And I, I wonder if there's any profitability to that. I wonder if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's Father's Day next week. I always try to drop those on the eve of Mother's Day and Father's Day. Just helping you moms out, kids out. Some of you dads are going to be really disappointed. <laughs> because you have convinced yourself that you deserve something. And you're going to get a tie. And it's going to be ugly. <laughs> and if you're serving your family as a father... With the expectation that you're going to be rewarded in this life in a way that meets the measure of your faithful service and labor for your family's well-being, there's a strong chance you're going to be sorely disappointed. Some of you are living your life in great anticipation of turning 65, as though they won't move the mark to 85 by the time we get there. And you think that your reward is coming in the 401k, Social Security program, Medicare. Basically means you can't get health care to half the places out there. You're going to be sorely disappointed. I don't know about you, but for me, most of the time when I am most inclined to come to sin's temptation, it's because I've been serving faithfully, laboring along, and there's an open door for me to convince my prideful, egotistical, sinful heart, tempted, goaded by the voice of that serpent of old, that somehow, some way, I deserve this, I deserve more, I deserve better. Y'all can look spiritual, but I know the state of man's heart. You're just as wicked as I am. You're going to have to preach to your heart again and again and again and again of your total undeservedness and the promise of reward that meets us in Jesus. If you're looking to Father's Day for your reward, you're going to be disappointed. If you're looking to retirement for your reward, you're going to be really disappointed. But if, if you can manage with eyes of faith to look beyond the temporary to the promise of a soon coming Jesus who brings his reward with him, you will never be disappointed. Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly. In verse 13, he says, I'm the Alpha and, Alpha and the Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is just a poetic way of saying, I'm it. And indeed he is. In verse 14, he says, blessed are those who wash their robes 
so that they may have a right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. Think about those first century saints again. Remember, Revelation had to mean something to them before it could ever mean anything to us. Think about their lot in life. How do you get ahead in first century Roman society? Well, you get ahead in any society by gainful employment. The problem for the Christian in the first century setting was, in order to be gainfully employed, you needed to be attached to a union or a trade guild in the empire. The problem with being a part of a trade guild in first century Rome was that they all had cult attachments. To be a part of silversmithing was to be a part of the worship of Diana, the goddess. Every cult had its own assigned god. Every guild had its own assigned occult practices. So as a follower of Jesus, you're on the outside looking in with regards to employment. Same could be said of the marketplace. In order to be actively engaged in commerce or in trade, which could even mean purchasing the goods necessary to provide for the needs of your family, you needed likewise an association with one of those trade guilds. So with regards to the marketplace, you are yet again on the outside looking in. They're watching those who are moving ahead. Those who've given themselves to compromise. How do you move ahead in the Roman Empire? You bow the knee to Caesar. You succumb to the propaganda of the day. This is how you move forward. The Christians are on the outside. And those who have paid homage to Caesar are on the inside. But what we observe in verses 14 and 15 is a reversal of fortune. On the outside, rather, are the dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. But on the inside is the tree of life and a river of life and the giver of life and all who have come to faith and repentance in him. You know, our experience is not that far off the experience of first century Roman Christians. We find ourselves in the throes of June, otherwise assigned the identity mark of Pride Month in Western civilization. And one of the great beasts of our day insists that you be subjugated to the beast and its authority. And if you fail to pay homage, to give tribute to this great beast, you can find yourself on the outside looking in with regards to employment. On the outside looking in with regards to the marketplace. But dear brothers, hold fast Because there's coming a day at the return of our Savior Jesus when the fortunes of the bride of Christ are reversed. When what has been on the inside finds itself on the outside. And those who have been consigned to the outside find themselves dining in the presence of their enemies. It's a word of encouragement to the church even in this stern statement that verse 15 represents. Verse 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus have sent my angel to attest to these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Without sufficient time to give a full treatment to what's being said here, it's worthy that we just note that here is a reference, two references to the Old Testament in such a way as to say, 
that Jesus is the yes and amen to all of the promises of God we find under the Old Testament. In verse 17, both the spirit and the bride say, come. Anyone who hears should say, come. And the one who is thirsty should come. Whoever desires should take the living water as a gift. Do you hear the tender invitation of the gospel in these words? All you need this morning is a thirsty soul. And you meet every requirement to come to the fountain of life and drink. Do you know the Lord? Has there ever been a moment in time in your life when you called out to God and said, God, forgive me of my sin. Save me for eternity. Does your, does your soul thirst for that? Jesus is tenderly calling, come and drink. He promises water that satisfies everlastingly. In verse 18, the Bible says, I testify to everyone who hears the prophetic words of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophetic book, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city written in this book. It's the only book in the Bible with such a stern warning against any editorial process. Don't add and, and don't take away. And if you do, there's going to be trouble. I think, I think, which is always scary, right? I think it's because the essence of Revelation is the gospel. What have we said again and again and again? What John said with words in the gospel of John, he now says with images, symbols, with vivid pictures in the book of Revelation. In other words, it feels as though to me in these two verses that John is saying we don't trifle with or play around with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All we have in Revelation is the appropriation of the message of the gospel to hurting people. What do you do when you're hurting? What do you do when you're suffering? What do you do when you're languishing? You run to Jesus through the message of the gospel, believing, repenting of sin. You hold fast to the one who holds fast to you. We don't play games with the gospel. Verse 20, he who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Listen to John's response, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. Now, I have a very determined view on the book of Revelation. If you've not picked that up by now, I don't think you've been paying very close attention. If, if I didn't think my view was right, I would change it. But clearly I do. Sometimes I speak with severity of tone toward other positions on the book. I don't intend to, but we tend to fiercely fight for what we hold close to our heart. I do have a tremendous amount of respect for others who hold to different positions and even respect for different positions themselves. But here's the qualifier. If your understanding of the book of Revelation does not make your heart scream, come, Lord Jesus, come, you have fundamentally misunderstood the nature of the book of Revelation. 
I hear so much fear and dread and trepidation about heaven, about death, about resurrection, about the second coming of Jesus. It's always a clear mark to me that someone somewhere has misunderstood the nature of Christ's second coming. If you in spiritual conversation ask people in the South, if you died right now, would you go to heaven? I don't know if you know this or not, but everybody in the South's going to heaven. They're not really, but everybody in the South thinks they're going to heaven. That's how they're going to respond. And, and so if you make the mistake of beginning your evangelistic conversation with that line of questioning, expect that you're going to have to press deeper. And as you press deeper, you'll often find this kind of response. I'm ready to go to heaven. I'm just not ready to go right now. Now listen, I have all of the same fears and concerns with regards to death. The biggest for me is to leave behind my wife, to leave behind my, my, my kids. There's a running joke at our house that we hope I die before my wife does. I don't, I don't, I don't know how many of you husbands have wives who are nurses. Do you know the old adage, the mechanic's car's broken down and the carpenter's house is falling down? Well, the nurse's husband is laying in there dying and she don't care. <laughs> she was just with someone who was literally dying. She is not concerned with my low-grade fever. <laughs> but I don't want to leave them. Here's what I can tell you. There's somebody that loves my wife better than I do. and His name is Jesus. And there's somebody that loves my kids more than we do. And his name is Jesus. And if you'll take the time to think deeply and to meditate in meaningful ways on what Revelation has to say about the glory of resurrection and what awaits us in the new heaven and the new earth, not to mention the irresistible beauty and goodness and glory of the one who bled and died to make heaven our reality by faith and repentance. You ought to find yourself saying with the spirit and the bride, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Now, I'm not talking about in that superficial country music kind of way. I mean, really, sincerely, in the marrow of your bones, in the deep and dark crevices of your heart. Are you enthusiastic for what heaven holds for us? Do you, do you look for that? longingly, when you feel the weight of the world's brokenness, is your inclination to sort of lash out, to cry out for some sort of political answer, some type of social action to rectify the world's condition? Or does your heart long for heaven? I'm just not sure. I'm not sure that in the, the, the present manifestation of American Christianity, there's a, there's a lot of realization with regards to who Jesus is, his wonderful magnificence, and the promise of resurrection glory. Even if we die, are y'all listening? Even if we die, if we die tomorrow, if we die right now, if we don't have the next breath, God will give it back in the glory of resurrection. 
He takes care of all of our, if God could take care of your sin issue, if God can take care of your, the fact that you are dead in sins and trespasses, if he has brought remedy to the fact that you will physically die at some point in your life, you will die. Can he be trusted with all else? And there ought to be this longing for heaven. Do away with this nonsense that we can be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Run the race well with joy in your heart and a smile on your face. Breathe your last and meet the Savior in glory. If you don't know him today, ready yourself to meet him. Wash your robes and Get ready to enter the gates and drink from the fountain and eat from the tree of life by faith and repentance. Ready your heart today to meet the Savior. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for the chance to give consideration to such a wonderful and powerful book. And I ask God that you would hide the words of this book in our heart that we might not sin against you. We're thankful, Lord, that your word is alive and abides within us, nourishing our soul and enlivening our life of faithfulness, God. I pray that you would rebuke and correct by your spirit and through your word even now, that you would help us to see ourselves from the perspective of heaven, or that those among us who are far from God would be brought near by the blood of the Lamb, that the church would be reinvigorated and enlivened by what we've observed even in these verses this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name.